Have you enjoyed the messages? That's not really the answer I was hoping to hear. You know, I I mean, yeah, we, we, we always enjoy hearing God's Word preached, right? But there's something about the Laodicean message which should make us uncomfortable. I almost think that if if the straight testimony of the true witness is, is being shared here in Houston this week, that some of these messages won't be that enjoyable, even if they are a blessing. Do you understand what I'm saying? Today I believe that we are living too late in earth's history for smooth messages. You know, the prophet Ezekiel was told by God, uh, listen to what they're saying in the houses and in the streets about you. They, They say, let's go hear this preacher, let's go hear these sermons, for your voice is as one who sings a song really well and plays well on a musical instrument. They loved preaching, but God continued and He said, they hear your words, but they don't do them. Somehow, I think that in the last days, Laodicea as we've, we've heard last night, as we've been hearing in the morning, Laodicea needs to be shaken from its complacency, don't we? Somehow God's Word needs to come close and cut us to the quick. Somehow we need to be challenged and made uncomfortable. And so I'm glad you've enjoyed GYC. I, I pray that the messages you hear, not, not just from here on the on the platform, but as you study the Word of God, I pray that whether enjoyable or not, they will all be a blessing, and they will challenge you and provoke you to search your heart and to think once again about your soul's condition. At the risk of being accused of reductionism, I want to simplify the gospel this morning. I think there are only two things that you and I need to know in order to be saved. Two things. Now, I'm not saying that's all you were ever going to know, that you're not going to keep learning, but there's only two things you really need to know in order to be saved. The first one, you need to know who you are. And the second, you and I need to know who God is. I think that if we didn't have any other knowledge yet, if we didn't have any other knowledge about the last days or end times or doctrines or all those other things, if we simply knew who who I am and who my God is, I would have enough. We would have enough knowledge in order to have a saving experience with Jesus Christ. And the Laodicean message, beloved, the Laodicean message is calculated to, to show us those two things, who we are and who God is. Let's have a prayer as we begin here this morning. Father in heaven, we thank you that you've given us your word. We thank you that your word is faithful, that you, the living word, have given us a a straight testimony, that you are the true witness, that you do tell us what we need to hear even if it's not what we want to hear or like to hear. And today, Father, I just want to pray that you will speak to my heart, you'll speak to each heart here through your word which is quick and powerful and sharper than a two-edged sword. We ask for your spirit to be here. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a human problem. We're going to talk first about the first bit of knowledge. 
who we are, who I am. There's a bit of a, a problem with the human experience. In the human experience, we all know about it. We're going to study it more. You're going to study it more in your breakout sessions. There was a problem called the fall when, when mankind moved away from obedience to God and to His Word, and, and the planet went into rebellion. And because of that, we are broken people. We are people in rebellion against the law of God. We're not subject to the things of God, neither indeed can be. Our heart is desperately wicked and deceitful above all things. We have a problem, a lost condition that is innate and inherent in our natural state. And the, the, the problem for Laodicea is not a unique problem in that, that, that a human, the, the human circumstances, the human conditions are such that we want to have external physical things that we can do in order to remedy our situation. This is not an Adventist problem. You, you hear Adventists being accused of legalism. I want to tell you something, friends. It's not an Adventist problem. It's not even a Christian problem. If you look at every false religion around the world, every religion around the world, except, I believe, the religion of salvation by grace through faith, if you look at every other religion, it is predicated upon man doing something in order to appease God or to earn credit or salvation or benefit with God. That is a natural response of the fallen heart. I want to share with you what Ellen White says in the book Desire of Ages, page 300. She says, the proud heart strives to earn salvation. To do what? To earn salvation, but both our title to heaven and our fitness for it are found where? In the righteousness of Christ. The Lord can do nothing. How much? Are you all awake this morning, GYC? What's the theme of our conference? Nothing. Can you say it again louder? What's the theme of our conference? Nothing. The Lord can do how much? Nothing toward the recovery of man until convinced of his own weakness and stripped of all self-sufficiency, he yields himself to the control of God. Then he can receive the gift that heaven is waiting to bestow. From the soul that feels his need, how much? Nothing is withheld. Here you have the two nothings that we should be getting excited about and learning about here at GYC. The nothing that God can do until we realize how nothing we are and the nothing that's withheld from us when we have realized our true condition and our need for Him. The Lord can do nothing toward the recovery of man until convinced of His own weakness and stripped of all self-sufficiency, He yields Himself to the control of God. You see, we have a problem as religionists. We have a problem as Seventh-day Adventist Christians. And I want to tell you this morning, I'm unapologetically, unashamedly a Seventh-day Adventist Christian. I love the message that God has given us, the three angels' message, to take to the entire world. I believe that this is God's movement for this time. But I also believe that it's dangerous to be a Seventh-day Adventist. It's dangerous to be a Laodicean. It's dangerous, listen to me carefully, it's dangerous to be a good person. Look with me in your Bibles in the book of Matthew. We're looking at today specifically at the white raiment, the white raiment that 
is offered to the Laodiceans. But I want us to sort of set the table here as we get into the study. You're going to be looking at in much more detail at the, the symbolism and the meaning and the experience of the white raiment as you study the Word of God together in your breakout rooms. But here in Matthew chapter 21, we find the parable of the two sons. And Jesus says to His listeners, but what do you think? A man had two sons. Matthew 21, beginning at verse 28, a man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, Son, go work today in my vineyard. And he answered and said, I will not. But afterward, he regretted it and went. Then he came to the second and said, Likewise, and he said, I go, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? And before they caught themselves, the Pharisees blurted out the obvious answer, the first. Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that tax collectors and harlots enter the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But tax collectors and harlots believed him, and when you saw it, you did not afterward relent and believe him. I want you to understand a little bit of what Jesus was saying here. In the context of that day, if he were speaking today, he would be speaking to us as Seventh-day Adventist Christians, as Laodiceans. He would be speaking to us, perhaps, even as GYCers, and he would be saying, the mafia bosses and the drug cartel kingpins will, and the prostitutes will enter the kingdom of heaven before you. Now, that should be an uncomfortable message for us as it was for them. What Jesus is here saying is that the person who is farthest from the kingdom of heaven, listen to me carefully, the person who is farthest from the kingdom of heaven is not the the cartel kingpins or the prostitutes, but the good person sitting in the pew who is not converted. Laodicea is in the worst possible condition. You see, the most dangerous condition, the condition farthest from salvation, is that of the professed but unconverted Christian. Why is that? Why is it better to be a drug pusher than a pew warmer? Now, let me, let me, let me be very clear here. There are benefits to living a good Adventist lifestyle, even if you're not converted, right? But we're talking about salvation here, aren't we? We're talking about salvation. Why would Jesus make this kind of a contrast between good religionists who may just not be perfect, but they were good people? I mean, they paid their tithe, and they avoided eating what they shouldn't eat, and they went to church every Sabbath, and they, they, they had the outward lifestyle of the best of the best of all of God's people. Why would God contrast those with the, 
with the, with the mafia bosses and the prostitutes and say they are closer to the kingdom of heaven. There, there's one, one reason that I can find. The reason is because those who are in abject uh, rebellion openly saying, I'm not going to go, I'm not a Christian, I'm not a believer, I'm not a churchgoer, I am not a good person or a righteous person, those people know their true condition. And remember, there are two things you need to know in order to be saved. One is who you are, your condition. The second is who Jesus is. And until we know who we are, we cannot appreciate who Jesus is. It's dangerous to be a professed Christian. It's dangerous to be a pew warmer. You see, there's the, 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 diff, the, the danger is because of the gap between our condition and the requirement for salvation. You see, God threw Satan and his angels out of heaven, didn't he? Why did he, why did he throw them out of heaven? The Bible says in 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 4 that our righteous God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them out of heaven. So sin led to them being cast out of heaven. What about Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden? Why were they cast out of the Garden of Eden? God cast Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden because they sinned. And I propose to you that if God allows a sinner back into heaven that doesn't meet the standard of perfection, that he owes an apology to the devil and his angels and to Adam and Eve for kicking them out in the first place. You say, oh, we don't have to be perfect. Yes, you do. Perfection is the requirement for salvation. Now, hold on. Hold on. Laodicea's got to get this message, beloved. Laodicea has to understand being good isn't good enough. Look with me at what Ellen White says in the book Steps to Christ. Page 62. The condition of eternal life is now just what it always has been, just what it was in paradise before the fall of our first parents. What is that condition? Perfect obedience to the law of God. Perfect righteousness. If eternal life were granted on any condition short of this, then the happiness of the whole universe would be imperiled. The way would be open for sin with all its train of woe and misery to be immortalized. Do you understand what the requirement is for salvation? It is perfect obedience perfect righteousness. Perfection is absolutely required for you and I to enter the pearly gates. But she continues in Steps to Christ, page 62. Please don't tune out because you'll miss the good news. It was possible before, for Adam before the fall to form a righteous character by obedience to God's law. But he failed to do this, and because of his sin, our natures are fallen, and we cannot make ourselves righteous. Since we are sinful, unholy, 
we cannot perfectly obey the holy law. Beloved, this is what you have to realize this morning. What you have to realize is it's too late for all of us. We've already blown it. One sin cost heaven for Satan and his angels. One sin for Adam and Eve. And we have been guilty of all, all of us have been guilty of sin, right? All of sin had come short of the glory of God. Even if, even if perchance by some divine miracle, you and I could live perfectly righteous, obedient, godly, uh, holy lives from this instant forward, we cannot make it to heaven. We've blown it. Perfection is required, and we don't have it. We can't have it in ourselves. There is no amount of attending seminars that will help this situation. There is no amount of going on mission trips or studying theology that will help this situation. There's no amount of tithing or giving of offering or giving your body to be burned. None of it will change the condition. Our condition is hopeless in our natural state. There is no path to heaven in and of ourselves. Oh, I wish I could go back and change things in the past, don't you? There are things I regret in my life, decisions I've made, things I've done. But the sad reality is you can't time travel and you can't go back. You can't change any of those things. They're there. I did it. I said it. I thought it. Whether it was through ignorance or arrogance or whatever it was, I can't change the wrongs that I've done in the past. And in the innovations, as we heard about from Sebastian last night, our human nature tries to just put salve to cover up the conviction of those things. You know, we try to peep on, pile on all the good things we're doing to try to mitigate the guilt from that things we've done in the past. But it doesn't work, and it can't help when it comes to salvation. We might forget about our sins. We might forget about how awful our character actually is. But we've already messed up. And there's nothing we can do to perfectly obey the law of God. But she continues, page 62 again of Steps to Christ. We have no righteousness of our own with which to meet the claims of the law of God. But Christ has made a way of escape for us. I, we should be so excited when we hear this news. He lived on earth amid trials and temptations such as we have to meet. He lived a sinless life. He died for us. And now he offers to take our sins and give us his righteousness. Wow! From hopelessness to hope. From helplessness to divine help. And she continues, if you give yourself to him, if you what? Give yourself to him and accept him as your savior, then sinful as your life may have been, it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter where you've been or what you've said or what you imagined or what you did or anything. Sinful as your life may have been, for his sake, you are accounted righteous. Uh, Christ's character stands in place of your character and you, you, I, 
we are accepted before God just as if we had not sinned. That is good news. That is the perfection we need. That is the white raiment that God is talking about in the Laodicean message. Sometimes we as theologians call it justification. Justification may sound like a theological word, but it just means to be made right or made righteous. We have synonyms such as pardon or forgiveness. Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, Paul said, therefore, and we don't have time to unpack all of the, the therefore, because he's talking about Romans chapter 4 and what he just argued about righteousness by faith. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Being justified by faith, we have peace. Being forgiven by faith, when we give ourselves to Christ, when we accept Him as our Savior, that justification takes place. His righteousness is imputed to our account. Our, our, our standing before God is just as if we had not sinned because God, when He looks at us, He sees not our sins and mistakes and our shortcomings and our failures. He sees the perfect robe of Christ's righteousness. And we, beloved, make no mistake about it, that is not something that is a, an evolutionary process. That is not something you have to work on. That is something perfection, that perfection, that perfect robe of righteousness is given to you when you accept Jesus as your Savior from sin. You and I stand before God as if we had not sinned with a perfect, spotless record. That's good news, beloved. That's good news. We should be shouting it from the housetops. We should be telling all kinds of people about it. You see, the problem is that we often get the cart before the horse. We often start to do things backwards. I grew up in the church, so I never... I never had that experience where I was out in the world and reached rock bottom. I used to sort of be jealous of those pastors that had the testimonies of how they had done all the wild, crazy things and how God had saved them. I've come to appreciate, friends, young people listen to me, I've come to appreciate that the grace of God that saves the destitute, down-and-out person is no more amazing than the grace of God that keeps a young person from going down that pathway. Don't look with regret upon your past if you don't have those stories. But let me tell you, there's a danger to growing up in the church, and the danger is that we don't realize how desperately we need help. The danger is we compare ourselves among ourselves, and we talk about the things that we do that other people don't do, and we look at those liberals or those conservatives, the people that aren't like us, and we say, we don't do those things, and we start to feel good about ourselves. The danger is that we we watch what, what good Christians do, and we just try to copy them. You know, we're growing up in the church and we do the things that church people do. But as Billy Sunday, the pro baseball player turned evangelist, used to say, going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than going to a garage makes you an automobile. So we do all the right things, but we don't realize that we're actually creating filthy rags or fig leaf garments that make us feel clothed when in actuality before the sight of God we are what? We're naked. We're naked. 
And so the danger growing up in the church is that we're comfortable, we're complacent, and we're better than a lot of people, quote-unquote, at least externally. At least we're tempted to think that way. We're tempted to think that the things we've done have made a difference. It's made a sort of bonus points for us, gets us closer to the kingdom. And we're just where the devil wants us, on the pew, in church, but unconverted. The most dangerous position a person can be in regards to their salvation. So let's look briefly here at Romans chapter 4. If you'll turn your Bibles there, Romans chapter 4, we'll, we'll notice for a moment what, what uh, Paul argues. He's basing his argument on Genesis chapter 15 and verse 6. For the sake of time, we're not going to turn there. We're just going to read a few verses from Romans chapter 4 where Paul makes the argument that salvation, justification, comes not because of our works, but because of our faith in Jesus. Romans chapter 4, what shall we say then? Verse 1, was gained by Abraham our forefather according to the flesh. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? And he's quoting Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. Now what he's referring us back to is that story of Abraham, where Abraham was given the covenant, and Abraham, the Bible says in verse 6 of Genesis 15, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. Now this is, this is the argument Paul's going to make. He he had that promise of righteousness before he fulfilled the conditions of the covenant, the sacrifice of the, of the animals and the turtle doves, before he had the, the, uh, the ceremony of circumcision as a sign of the covenant. He, he was counted righteousness based upon his belief in God, not based upon what he did in order to obey God. Do you understand what, what Paul's trying to argue? He's arguing that righteousness comes by faith and not by works. Now, we're going to try to unpack more the relationship between faith and works and, and justification and sanctification throughout your study this, this morning and, and again this evening. But I want you to know something. The, the, the Bible here is saying, he's trying to argue. Look with me in the last few verses now of, of Romans 4. This is why, verse 22, this is why... Um, Let's go back to 20. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him for righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification." I want you to know that is the context of therefore. The next word Paul says is therefore. Based upon Abraham's being counted righteous based upon his belief, not his actions. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. I remember one time I was preaching in Siberia, an evangelistic series, and one particular message I gave on salvation, and I presented the gospel message. Afterwards, a tall, maybe mid-30s, early 40s Russian gentleman pressed his way forward. He was very nicely dressed. He stood very erect. He seemed very stately, and it was his turn to ask me a question. He came through my translator, and he said, I am an officer in the Russian army. My men have been through terrible experiences. 
every week, one of them is committing suicide. You see, he began to explain to me, my unit was deployed in the region of Kazakhstan. They told us not to shoot the children. But the enemy was using chil children to plant mines and to deliver messages. We shot them anyway. Now that we're back in Russia, my men can't sleep. They can't live with themselves. They're committing suicide. He said, but if, if what you share today is true, if God can forgive anybody, then that is the message they need to hear. Would you please come to the Russian military base and share this message with my men? You see, friend, the gospel saves anyone. It can save anyone, I should say. But it does save those who realize their need for it. We're here at GYC. We're not baby killers. We're not war criminals. We don't do a lot of the things that other people do. But we need salvation and Christ's perfect righteousness just as much as that Russian officer and his men needed Jesus. If you give yourself to him and accept him as your savior, then sinful as your life may have been, you are accounted righteous. Christ's character stands in place of your character, and you are accepted before God just as if you had not sinned. That means right now, today, not tomorrow after you have devotions again, not, to, not, to, not after you learn your Bible better, not after you go home and, and do all the things you need to change. Today, right now, if you give yourself to Jesus, heaven sees you as perfect and ready for his kingdom. He'll take care of the rest, beloved. He will save you. It's your job to accept him as your savior. You see, Laodicea's problem is that we sometimes confuse the effects of salvation and the cause of salvation. We sometimes confuse being a Christian and doing Christian things. We sometimes get the cart before the horse. We sometimes attempt to experience a form of on-my-own sanctification before experiencing justification by faith, which we can never deserve and we can do nothing to attain. Except, except accepting Jesus as our Savior. So let me ask you a question. What can I do to change my past? Nothing. Nothing. What, kind of, what, what can a life of disobedience mixed with attempted or even real obedience do to save me? Nothing. Nothing. What do I have to do before I come to Jesus? What do I have to change in my life before I go to Jesus? 
My last quotation I'll share with you before we break up to study is found in Steps to Christ, page 52. Some seem to feel that they may, must be on probation and must prove to the Lord that they are reformed before they can claim His blessing. But they can claim the blessing of God even now. They must have His grace, the Spirit of Christ, to help their infirmities or they cannot resist evil. Jesus loves to have us come to Him just as we are. Praise God. Sinful, helpless, dependent, we may come with all our weakness, our folly, our sinfulness, and fall at his feet in penitence. It is his glory. That simply is a phrase that means it's his favorite thing to do. It is his glory to encircle us in the arms of his love, to bind up our wounds, to cleanse us from all impurity. Beloved, we need to be shaken by God's word today. You and I need, if we're going to be saved as good people, we need to realize how hopelessly lost we are without a miracle. Let's pray. Father in heaven, today we thank you that you've given us Jesus. We thank you that we can have in him perfect righteousness. Lord, there's so much we could unpack with the incarnation and, and your life here on earth and your death on the cross. But right now, Lord, as we go to study more about that white raiment, I just pray... I pray that you will show us more of who we are and who you are. I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. This message was recorded at the GYC Conference Nothing in Houston, Texas. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to challenge and inspire young people to take sacrificial initiative for Christ and to see Jesus finish the work in this generation. For other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org.